0: Beloveds, welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we are exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? This podcast is a project of Surge Faith. SURGE stands for Showing Up for Racial Justice. The word is resistance is designed to be a resource for white people who are realizing that following Jesus in this time and in this country means listening to, learning from, and joining in with the struggle against racism and white supremacy. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. My name is Seth Wispelway. I'm a pastor in the United Church of Christ. I use he and him pronouns, and I am speaking with you all from Tucson, Arizona, which is located on the occupied territory of the Tohono O'odham Nation and its people, who have stewarded this land for generations. Sisters, does it mean to be born anew? This week's lectionary from the Gospel of John contains one of, if not the most famous verses in the Christian Testament, chapter 3, verse 16. But before we get to, for God so loved the world, dot, 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 we have a conversation. Jesus is visited by a fellow Jewish leader named Nicodemus, and they have a conversation about what it means to see, and most importantly be, the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is unsure what Jesus means by needing to be born anew, or born from above in some translations, to see the kingdom. Nicodemus thinks Jesus might mean it literally. Jesus responds that no one can enter the kingdom way of living without being born of spirit or wind, the breath of God that brings forth life and life-giving ways of belonging to one another, that being born of flesh is its own thing. So what does it mean to be born anew? He wants to know. Or maybe a better question, how do we white folks of faith and conscience, find out what it means to be born anew. Thankfully, the liturgical season of Lent is just such a time for finding out. Right now, in the season of Lent, we're in the desert, so to speak. Last week, the lectionary actually jumped back to this time before the ministry that defines our faith. We jumped back for the story of Jesus' 40 days alone in the desert, only to jump to the very end of the public ministry at the end of Lent, an end of Jesus' bodily life perpetrated in the most cruel way possible. He experiences the would-be deterrent of torture on a cross, a desired deterrent against anyone else who would strive to change things up like Jesus was doing giving hope and life to the multitudes as a testament to the reign of God, not the ruling, violent, wealthy elite. We're now in the desert with Jesus for 40 days. And if you remember the story, you know Satan comes at the end of that time of fasting, reflection, and prayer. Satan, which means the adversary, the one who prescribes the inverse of God's life-giving way, knows that Jesus is vulnerable. At the most vulnerable he'll be until that cross. At the most vulnerable any of us would be. These 40 days have been a time for Jesus to wrestle with and think long and hard about whether he really wants to do what he knows God is calling him to do. There's no glamour coming in it. No riches. No white picket fence with a two-car garage. Is God's reign of love and peace and mercy and goodness for all going to be worth it? Is dismantling white supremacy to help achieve these things going to be worth it when the powers that be want anything but? We do well to ask ourselves this question daily as professed followers of Jesus. Are we truly committed Remember that Jesus also has a choice, and he needs the desert to clear his head, heart, spirit, and body to determine if God's call still guides him when all else is stripped away. And here comes Satan at the height, or should I say low point, of Jesus's bodily weakness and hunger and thirst and loneliness, and offers him the world, just as long as he swears allegiance, to the way the world is run. That's all. Go with the flow. Uphold the status quo. And you won't feel this gnawing ache for a drop of water ever again. Whether we call it Satan or not, our own thoughts would definitely turn to temptation by any of these offers by day 40, if not well before. And note very well that Satan offers the empires of the world, which means that Satan's way of doing things is the way of the existing rulers. Satan's way of doing things is the status quo. Satan's way, the adversaries to God's kingdom, is white supremacy. We do well to remember this when we engage in the public square, when we read the headlines of all that's wrong, and when we wrestle with our own personal temptations and choices for quick fixes to mental, spiritual, and physical health. When we are tempted by quick fixes to structural racism, when we are tempted to stay in our comfort zones, white supremacy is never dismantled by a retweet or a like on Facebook. This time of reflection is what the season of Lent is for us, too. It's not ascetic self-flagellation, or subscribing to a diet fad of giving something up after we slipped up on our New Year's resolution. Lent is a season to pray with Jesus in the desert, knowing that perhaps the cross is coming. It's a season to practice letting go of that which we can't take with us, not to challenge ourselves to the breaking point, but to better appreciate that which is worth everything, love, relationships, community, kindness, and extending them to all, including ourselves. The wealth and comfort and power of this world are corrupt and corrupting, and they are false comforts, distracting us from that godly goodness. Lent is not for stressing what we quote-unquote can't have, but leaning into goodness and appreciating it more than we are able to without those distractions. And extending those practices beyond Lent. What tempts you? I'm not necessarily talking about vices, things like cigarettes, soda, and too much chocolate. That's not what Lent is about. Though, if you want to give up those things, more power to you. What are the temptations that distract you from the way of Jesus that we read and hear about, at least weekly? that conveniently distract us from being in embodied solidarity with those who are already marginalized to the proverbial desert. These things may be so ingrained into our everyday lives that we don't even think of them as temptations, but simply everyday life, normality. Our wider culture would certainly like them to be normal, to keep keep us bombarded by entertainment to binge until we pass out. To keep us tricked by cheap meals that are too enticing and quote-unquote easy. To remember to ask why they're so cheap in the first place and where the hidden costs of labor, human dignity, and quality are. What's keeping you from hanging out with Jesus in the desert? And what can you do during Lent that starts to break through? What can you let go of and lean into that creates a hunger, a healthy hunger? and appreciation for that which God wants you to see. Maybe it's a morning walk to clear your head. Maybe it's this podcast on the way to work. Maybe it's stopping to listen, really listen, to your co-workers who are people of color and when they highlight something wrong at work and say jump, you say how high. Maybe it's Like Jesus, getting outside your comfort zone and away from the friends you know to the places in your city where those already marginalized into the desert by empire are famished against their will and are organizing and crying out for solidarity. Maybe they need some new friends like you, willing to simply show up and do the work. We won't know unless we pause Netflix before the next episode here's your comfort. Jesus is with you. And you won't have needed to literally fast for 40 days even. So if he can withstand the adversary at the end of that, we can take these steps towards changing up our comfort zones in Lent so that we can fully appreciate what we want to cherish most in this lifetime. How exciting is that? Lent isn't a downer. It's a the doorway to life and life abundant. Just, yeah, not on the terms of our ruling powers. Our ruling powers would very much like to keep white supremacy supreme. My hope and prayer is that during this 2020 season of Lent, with chaos and fear swirling outside, we can proactively learn and lift up the stories of life and that which brings us individual and collective liberation, in Jesus' name. And yes, at the end of Lent, we're going to find this same Jesus, who right now is famished, hallucinating, and sorely tempted in the desert. We're going to find him with nothing but a crown of thorns. His public ministry was defined by connection. And community with others, so he didn't need material possessions. And he, even if he had them, he couldn't take them with him to the cross. We'll find him after all is said and done, bleeding out, unable to breathe, feeling forsaken. Maybe like he did in the desert. Maybe like you do now. Maybe you're not one of the comfortably numb ones tempted and protected by the pleasures of the white supremacist patriarchal status quo. Maybe you're famished, spiritually and even bodily. If so, let us know how we can tend to you and come alongside you. This is what the entire year, not just Lent, must be for. What church is for, if it's for anything, tending to those who are outcast everywhere else. Most of us listening here today probably aren't the forsaken outcast. We humbly seek to repent and be in solidarity and support with and for you who are. To practice Lent is to repent. And what does repent mean again? It simply means to rethink everything, to turn towards the life-giving way, To recognize and name where our view and lives are obscuring the life-giving way of Jesus and turning away from them. It's not to give up. To repent is to change. To be changed. Perhaps some of you have seen Martin Scorsese's film The Last Temptation of Christ. It's one of my all-time favorites and if I don't watch it throughout the year, I at least make sure to watch it on Good Friday or Holy Saturday before Easter. Whether you've seen it or not, one of the standout scenes is when Jesus, played by Willem Dafoe, sits down with Pontius Pilate, played by none other than David Bowie, to talk about what he's been up to and why he's been arrested before he heads to the cross. And Pilate at one point confronts him and says, you know, It's one thing to want to change how people live, but you want to change how they think, how they feel. Jesus responds, all I'm saying is that change will happen with love, not with killing. Pilate responds, either way it's dangerous. It's against Rome, and it's against the way the world is. And killing or loving, it's all the same. It simply doesn't matter how you want to change things. We don't want them changed. You do understand what has to happen now. And then Pilate tells Jesus about Golgotha, the place of the skulls, where the cross is waiting. Pilate recognizes the truth of Jesus' time. Yes, Jesus wants to transform the living conditions of the multitudes, but he gets us there when we all rethink everything and the change that will bring. Therein lies the promise for peace on earth, And the threat to all those who subscribe to maintaining so-called peace by other means. They need their power to change things on their terms. The same power that Jesus refused in the desert. And once Jesus gets on the cross in Last Temptation, he is confronted with that last temptation. And it's a banal one, which makes it almost even more dangerous. Satan... The adversary, here in the form of a blonde, blue-eyed girl, takes the blonde, blue-eyed Jesus, which I think in this film makes for perfect casting, to what could be his if he simply refuses to go through with that ultimate cost to seeing God's kingdom known. Satan gives him the lucid dream of the simple married life, with the white picket fence, a life that crosses over decades with family, lovers, children, and ripe old age. How tempting. To bathe in the deceptive comforts of our selective history, to willfully ignore our shared humanity with those who lack those comforts, to miss the forest for the trees. How tempting to stay comfortable in the privilege of the white supremacist patriarchal status quo that's designed to protect and serve us at the expense of others." Now, don't get me wrong, there is good and life-giving and necessary sustenance in hearth and home, but it is for all to enjoy without fear and alienation. Hear these words from Joerg Reiger writing in his contribution to Unsettling the Word, Biblical Experiments and Decolonization, edited by Steve Heinrichs. Quote, when Jesus stands up to the temptations of hegemonic power and the abundance it offers, he is clearly taking the side of the disinherited, the exploited, the oppressed, the working poor, the blessed down and out. In so doing, he reclaims the power of the people that works from the bottom up. Jesus-inspired movements throughout history showed that this is not just a pious dream. In the Americas, it was people's movements that ended slavery, child labor, and many other forms of discrimination, and it was people's movements that achieved near-universal suffrage and labor laws, social security regulations, and many other benefits. Much remains to be done, for sure. But we know where to look for hope. Quote. Now for that most famous verse. For God so loved the world that God gave God's only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. What to say that hasn't been said. How about this <laughs> from biblical scholar Gail O'Day. She says, eternal life does not speak of immortality or a future life in heaven, but is a metaphor for living now in the unending presence of God. Jesus' offer of his own life through being lifted up on the cross makes eternal life possible for those who believe. Jesus' death is a link to God's love for the entire world. The call to embody solidarity until all are free from the oppression, racism, misogyny, and exploitation of empire is a call that can and does lead to the cross. The powers that be want anything but that change-making liberation that comes to all in body and soul in ways that upend the deadly machinations of empire. The unending presence of God is the opposite of those quote-unquote temptations that adversaries of the kingdom want us to hold on to, like white supremacy and the numbing comforts that obscure and atrophy our desire to dismantle it. Remember and know, this Lenten season and beyond, that you will be provided with enough, but we have to let go of the rest to get there. We have to be born anew, living in the unending presence of God. That's when resurrections happen. That's when white supremacy not only becomes non-supreme, but non-existent. I want to close with a poem by Marin Tirabasi titled The Gospel According to White Folks. In the big messy story of Nicodemus, white folks might find themselves out at night trying to read ta Coates or N. K. Jemison, and just wishing it was Thurman's The Work of Christmas or familiar quotes from Martin Luther King Jr. used every year in January at the interfaith service because we have convinced ourselves that we understand those. And we have also all read Waking up white and think that means we can still be a teacher and not actually need to be born again. We want very much to skip directly to God so loved the world, in which we are thinking of ourselves as the lovies, rather than the poor and vulnerable, the deported and devalued. If white folks follow the story, we know the old guy slunk away, pretty much not willing to pull on the diapers then and there, and that he was a liberal, trying to convince the Sanhedrin not to kill Jesus in a backhanded and safe kind of way, and a very little bit of an activist helping Joseph with the burial. But no one knows whether he ever got near the water, or the Pentecostal fire, or cried his heart out, neonatal and alone in the night. The PBS Nicodemus documentary is not really the point, although it is a fascinating distraction from whether me or you, white person, is willing to be born again. The reading of that poem is shared with permission from the author, Marin Tiribasi. It appears in this year's Recipicence a Lenten devotional for dismantling white supremacy, edited by Vahisha Hassan and Nicola Torbett. It's not too late to get your copy in printed PDF or ebook form, a highly recommended resource and Lenten journey. If you're listening to this podcast, I probably don't need to tell you that the political situation we find ourselves in right now is serious. And we need everyone to be doing their part. For white folks, we've heard time and time again from movement leaders of color, y'all go get your people. We need white folks to be committed to anti-racist work and undermining white supremacy in 2020. I'm proud to be a part of the showing up for racial justice community because this is exactly what Surge is trying to do. Amazing work is afoot in 2020 and we need y'all's help. If you're committed to getting white folks on board for dismantling white supremacy, please make a donation to Surge. You can donate online on our podcast page at showingupforracialjustice.org. Thanks for helping support this podcast and organizing white people to show up for racial justice and the new world we're building together. This live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the Freedom Movement you're hearing is of a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney-Harding family for letting us use the song for this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. As always, the transcript this week will include a bunch of resources at the end to support your action. Let us know how it goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. Stay tuned next week when Drew Bongiovanni will be walking with you through what the lectionary has to say to us in this space. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Be sure to give this episode a like or rate us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Transcripts are available on our website, which include any references, credits, and copyright information. Thanks to our sound editor this week, Matt Reno. And now to close with a modified Franciscan benediction. May God bless you with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may live deep within your heart. May God bless you with anger at white supremacy and all injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people, so that you may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May God bless you with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, racism, misogyny, queerphobia, war, xenophobia, and more, so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and embody solidarity until their pain is turned into joy. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in this world, so that you can do what others claim cannot be done.